I don't think even GMF would have been wise <laughs> enough to sit there watching Lehman Brothers collapse in 2008 and say, this is going to lead to Russia re-establishing <laughs> itself as a military power in the Mediterranean. Welcome to another episode of the Post-Pandemic Order. My name is Julie Smith, and I'm your host this week. I'm very pleased to welcome Angus Lapsley from the other side of the Atlantic in London. He is currently serving as the Director General for Strategy and International in the UK Ministry of Defense. Welcome, Angus. Hi, Julian. Thank you very much for inviting me. So there's plenty we can jump into here from where you sit in the UK MOD. I think because I'm a bit of a NATO nerd myself, I would love to start with the NATO alliance, if that's all right with you. For me, looking at NATO's response to COVID-19, it's been pretty remarkable in terms of the alliance's ability to respond in real time and provide some assistance. What are some of your takeaways in terms of how the alliance has responded? I mean, do you do you think this is showing that the this alliance that's a little rusty and creaky at times perhaps has more resilience and is better equipped to deal with present day challenges than maybe some of us imagined? So uh, I think for a 70 year old alliance, um, uh, NATO is far from rusty and creaky. It's got a lot of it's got a lot of <laughs> life left in in those limbs. Um, and it's certainly not self isolating at the moment. So look, I think first of all, I think the most important thing NATO has done over the last few weeks is demonstrate that it, it can walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, if you look at the key defence outputs from NATO, enhanced forward presence in the Baltic, air policing in both the Baltic and uh, Iceland and, and the Black Sea, they just haven't stopped. Sure. And uh, almost all allies have been able to maintain their uh, frontline commitments. And I think that's really important. And, you know, we've even seen some slightly more adventurous things happening. So just 10 days ago, the uh, US Navy and the Royal Navy operating in the Barents Sea, something we haven't done for a while, actually, uh, just demonstrating to anyone it needs demonstrating to that NATO is not asleep. NATO is out and about assuring the defence and deterrence of Europe that is so important. So I think that's the first point, And I think that's been quite impressive. Um, secondly, NATO has been stepping up, making itself available to support uh, national governments uh, in their own response to to COVID. Now, of course, you know NATO is primarily a defence and military organisation. We're not the front line when it comes to to dealing with COVID. That's fallen to our health services. Uh, but NATO has been helping. The NATO Disaster Response Coordination Centre has been coordinating military requests for assistance. Uh, so the UK, for example, at the moment is dealing with a request channeled through NATO that actually came from the African Union. So uh, I think NATO can help like that. And I think the third area where the NATO response has actually been kind of rather mature and good is in response to the, the, the sort of none too subtle efforts to influence European public opinion that have come from from some other countries. I mean, some of the diplomacy and some of the messaging and the disinformation has been pretty obvious. And I think NATO quite quickly came together and said, right, we must make sure we're getting our own messages out. 
dealing with disinformation where we where we see it. And I think the maturity of our publics and medias in response to those efforts from other countries has has been quite reassuring, actually. Um, people people can see it when it's happening and with a bit of help from NATO and others have been able to push back on it. So, yeah, I would agree with you. I think actually NATO has come together and the mood amongst allies has been very much to lean in and support each other. Thinking about the longer term, I mean, it's pretty clear that we're going to be facing some form of a global recession. I mean, there are basically any indicator you look at, there's trouble on the horizon. And of course, as you and I both know, oftentimes when finance ministers are struggling to find additional resources, they sometimes are quick to look at defense budgets. One could imagine a scenario in which at least some NATO allies, maybe not all of them, but really struggle to hang on to either their existing budget lines or to continue on the path that they've been to actually increase defense spending since the 2014 summit where there were pledges to try and meet the 2% of GDP uh, target inside the NATO alliance. So when you think about where the NATO alliance will be, say, you know, a year from now, um, thinking about a ministerial or a summit in 2021, do you think about some darker scenarios where the alliance is going to be actually rolling back some of the progress that member states have made over the last couple of years? Well, look, I think um, you know all governments around the world are going to face some quite tough choices about prioritization of spending as we hopefully come out of this health crisis and come out of the economic crisis that it will also have provoked. But uh, I mean, I'm I'm personally still only just recovered from uh, helping to organise the NATO summit that we had in London um, just over six months ago, and and it was right. a fa- it was a it was a fantastic event. But it it also showed that you have a bunch of leaders who understood that the threat scenario for countries in the NATO alliance is 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 not great at the moment. Um, uh, we're not in an we're not in a cold war. We shouldn't exaggerate things. But the multiplicity and complexity and 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 level of threat that exists out there, um, whether it's from um, hostile states or whether it's from non-state actors, means that we we really do have to take these things quite seriously. Uh, and I think that was the mood around the table in London. Uh, six months ago. And that requires sustained long-term effort. And I think it's just, you know, it's worth remembering when we when we talk about spending in defence uh, and in NATO, we're generally talking about committing to spending and programmes that last 10, 20 years. Uh, so uh, sometimes you have a short-term blip, as we as we hope this this will be. But I think right. it's that long-term commitment that 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 matters, and an understanding and, a, and an honest discussion of threat and how you deal with it. Yeah. So you mentioned the uh, the Leaders Summit that happened in December of last year. And I really want to ask you um, about China. And I want to ask about that because as Americans look at how Europeans are coping with some of the challenges associated with a rising China. They see a lot of headlines surrounding the European Union, and uh, they notice that the European Union, uh, many of us here in Washington were curious that the European Union called China a systemic rival for the first time. I guess that was the spring of last year. But I think NATO doesn't get as much attention because 
certainly the NATO alliance isn't looking at China as a conventional military threat. And yet what happened at that summit was that um, NATO kind of produced this China review. Could you could you tell us a little bit about what's happening inside the alliance as it relates to China? I think to start with, and this is maybe implicit in what you're saying, for most Europeans at least, the threats they worry about most are uh, either Russia or the, the threat from uh, non-state actors, from terrorism, which tends to emanate from the South and the East. And I don't think that has changed. And indeed, Many European countries, the UK being one of them, worry about both those things uh, at the same time. So it is certainly true that that Europeans tend to put those two issues uh, first. However, I think you have seen, and it's been going on for about 12 months now, a recognition that NATO needs to think about China. For most Europeans, China does not represent a direct military threat. It's a long way off. It's not in competition with uh, European countries over territory or uh, the kind of things that would classically produce a a military standoff. Um, However, I think Europeans are beginning to understand the the sheer scale of transformation in China, the sheer scale of its military modernization and its ability to project uh, influence and sometimes power or even force across quite wide swathes of the globe. And inevitably, therefore, bumping up against interests that, 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 that we as Europeans have. And starting to understand that transformation, starting to work out what that means for us as Europeans, I think is a debate which is, which is definitely gathering momentum um, in Europe, even though it is still, I think, quite a different debate in tone to the debate in the United States. So uh, NATO has set itself the task of making sure that it is properly understanding the implications of China's rising importance, including as a as a strategic security actor uh, for, for what NATO does. And actually, you know, you, you don't have to think that far um, to parts of the world that both NATO and China have a have a strategic interest in. Um, so I think that's that's where we are at the moment. So pivoting from Brussels and the NATO summit and NATO ministerials and everything that's happening inside the NATO alliance, I really want to get into what's happening inside London. Many of us have been listening with great interest about some of the visions and plans for global Britain in the wake of Brexit. But also if you overlay the COVID-19 pandemic and kind of associated challenges in its wake one wonders you know if you if you can maintain this vision for global britain what what does it look like i think i have a pretty good sense of what some of the ambition looked like before covid-19 could you give us a sense whether or not there might be a slightly different twist to that or different vision in terms of what's desirable versus what's possible for global Britain going forward? How do you think about it as a policymaker and someone who served both in the FCO and the MOD? I mean, does it give you pause or I guess this will be an ongoing conversation inside London for quite some time? Well, look, we are set to have an integrated review in Britain 
of our foreign policy and defence policy. Uh, That was announced by the government a few months ago. Not long afterwards, COVID hit us all and that review was understandably paused and will pick up again um, uh, in due course. So I think in many ways, you know, that review will be the moment at which we can say more to the world about what you're getting at, you know, what this what this global Britain vision uh, means. What I would say, though, as a as a sort of policy practitioner, is I think many of the themes that this government are trying to get at, they have been on the table for a very long time, including long before Brexit uh, was was on the table. Uh, you know, I recall being the Foreign Office's director for the Americas uh, 10 years ago. Now, it doesn't feel like 10 years ago, but it was. And we were, at that time, William Hague was Foreign Secretary, and we were surging resources back into Latin America, having having sort of drifted away from Latin America for, for too long. And that was, that was a recognition which had nothing to do with our relationship with Europe, um, a recognition that there are parts of the world which are becoming more important uh, economically and in some cases in security terms as well, uh, that Britain just needed to re-engage with. And there were all sorts of reasons for for, for doing so. And I think that basic instinct of recognising the, the way the balance of power and influence and whether that's economic or cultural has changed in the world and that therefore we need to change our foreign policy and our engagement with the world to reflect some of that. I think that has very deep uh, roots. What it, what it doesn't mean is that we will focus less on our traditional preoccupations with European security, the transatlantic relationship. Sure. Um, those things are where so many of our vital national interests remain bound up. And I don't think we will see less of that. We will have to see where we go um, post-COVID. Yes, it's true that it, it's possible that some of the resource choices will be, will be tougher. Uh, but by and large, these things are not, uh, they're not zero sum. You know, if you are engaging, for example in building relationships in Southeast Asia, you may well be building relationships which help you deliver objectives that matter to Europeans as a whole. It's not, right. it's not a zero right. sum game. No, that, that, that makes perfect sense to me. I, it reminds me of the days when I served in the Obama administration, you know, talking about the ever famous pivot to Asia at the time and some concern in Europe that the United States was turning away. But I think the Obama administration was trying to thread the needle to show that it would remain committed while also looking out across the Pacific. I mean, it's it's hard to to describe some of these policy shifts and and talk about them. Given the fact that y- your current position, I mean, you you've got a very wide and broad mandate that, that covers a lot of ground, including the topics we've covered already, NATO and and the Euro-Atlantic area and the defense implications of EU defense initiatives and and all of that, as well as the UK's bilateral defense relationships but I know I know you've got arms control as part of your mandate and I I can't resist jumping into a couple of topics here because there's so much happening in this space um, there are open-ended questions about new start extending new start how one goes about that whether or not China is included in that there's some rumors of the US resuming nuclear testing there's a very interesting debate going on in Berlin right now about nuclear sharing that uh, many of us have been watching closely from afar. So let's start maybe with the first thing I, I mentioned and get some UK perspectives on extending New Start and what you 
you make of some of the debates on this side of the Atlantic where folks are saying, you know, China somehow needs to be included in this and what this means about the future extension of New Start and kind of maybe you could start by walking us through kind of London's perspective uh, on this. Well, look, I mean, London's perspective, we come at this as a, as a nuclear power, but uh, but a power which is committed to having a minimum credible deterrent. So we took steps some years ago to uh, reduce our nuclear stockpile, our weapon systems to the minimum that we were required to maintain a deterrent. And that's a policy position that we are committed to. Um, and indeed are now going through the process of renewing our capabilities in the form of new submarines and warheads right. and, and the things that we need to do. So at one level, we as Europeans, we don't play in the game of large numbers of nuclear weapons or, or systems. But I think we have, for many years now, appreciated the strategic stability that the New START Treaty provides, not least as a as a mechanism for bringing Russia and, and America together to discuss strategic stability. Um, so I think we, like other Europeans, have, have, have been clear all along that we, we, would, we would worry if the New START Treaty was to, to lapse with no replacement. However, we, you know, we do understand and, and have made clear that, that Washington feels as though it wants to, to get at some of the issues that arise from having China emerging as a, as a third major nuclear power, albeit one that's still uh, a long way off um, the kind of capabilities that, that, that either Russia or the United States have. You know, I think as responsible nuclear power, uh, we will we will try and work with the US on that. We've also, you know, been keen to participate in P5 discussions about nuclear issues, and and we were pleased that those P5 discussions were able to to pick up last year after a long uh, after a long break. Um, so look, it's important to keep talking on these issues, and we will do our bit to try and and help navigate what is always a tricky set of questions. Yeah, no, this is a lot to talk about and jump into here. Also very curious kind of how you're observing what's going on in Berlin at the moment. I know that many of us here in Washington are concerned, not everybody, I can't speak for the entire city or, or the administration to be sure, but it is Berlin's debates about the future of nuclear sharing are capturing some headlines over here. With There's at least curiosity and a preference for Berlin not to rush to any big decision on this. There does seem to be a political angle here, recognizing that the social democrats seem intent on using this as a way to differentiate themselves from the CDU. I don't know, is it garnering as much interest in London? Uh, um, maybe we're more concerned with some of this than folks in London. How, how is it playing on, on your side of the, of the Atlantic? Well, I think we appreciate and value the role that Germany, like a number of other NATO allies, have right. um, in yeah. maintaining NATO as a nuclear alliance. Um, it's sure. been one of the founding features of the alliance for many, many years now. From, from where I see it, Germany's commitment to that role is 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 firm. I think the much more uh, the much more lively debate in Europe at the moment uh, is about what does a Europe after the INF Treaty uh, look like? Yes. Because there, yes. of course, you're talking about missile systems which are, are inherently about Europe, at least if they're deployed in the, in, in the European theatre. And I think you know, we and the Germans and other European countries are, are trying to feel our way within NATO now um, to the right 
package of measures in response to this threat, and threat isn't the right word to use in these circumstances, that Russia has has put in front of us by having a multiplicity of both now short and intermediate range missiles, which are dual capable, so you don't know whether they're conventional uh, or, or, or nuclear, and which which in our in our view do destabilize uh, strategic stability within within Europe. So I think that is the more important debate at the moment here in Europe. And, you know, we're all now working through a process of decision making in NATO to make sure right. that we come up with the right deterrence and defence posture to make sure that Russia doesn't feel she gets uh, an advantage she can exploit from the deployment of these weapon systems. I also wanted to ask you, Angus, about the Trump administration's decision to walk away from the Open Skies Treaty. The U.S., like the INF, was making the argument that, you know, Russia is violating this, therefore we're kind of done with it. I know there are different views on this within this city in which I reside, different views on the other side of the Atlantic. Did that news surprise folks in London? Are you concerned about it? Are you concerned about what it says in terms of the Trump administration's feelings about New START. I don't know. How was that? How was that received? So it wasn't a surprise. Right. And we've made very clear that we will stay in the New START treaty, as indeed have um, uh, all other allies who are who are members of that treaty, because we think it it does add value. It's possible that it adds more value if you're a European country than than it does if you're the US, but it definitely adds value. What we do do is recognize and understand US concerns about Russia's non-compliance with the treaty. And, and there have been sure. issues uh, over the last couple of years. We stand ready to engage the Russians on that, see if we can get to a, a, a position where they come back into compliance and we hope that if that's possible to achieve, then the US would, would reconsider its decision. But we, as I said, we, you know, we understand where Washington has come from on this. Right, right. Now, I remember back when I was in government, which seems like a long time ago, we used to occasionally, and we do this in think tank world as well, toss around kind of what we describe as the black swan scenarios, things that are probably unlikely to happen, but nonetheless, you should occasionally think about them as a, as a policymaker, walk through some different scenarios. I mean, if you think about the transatlantic security landscape over the next couple of years, what do you think are some of those black swan scenarios? I mean, I was talking to someone the other day and they said, well, kind of depending on how Putin in Russia fares uh, in this crisis, you know, and the drop in oil prices, how that may affect his standing. Maybe Russia feels the need for more adventurism and we should prepare ourselves for something like that. I mean, if, if you have to walk through a couple of black swan scenarios, I mean, what, what worries you about what comes in the wake of this, this pandemic, whether it's in the Middle East or in some other region around the world? What, what would be on your list? Well, look, I've, I've been reflecting on this. I think most of us have. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. And indeed, one advantage of working from home is that you have more time to follow what think tanks are, are, are sagely predicting right. about the world. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, if you... If if you think back to, you know, the collapse of Lehman Brothers back in 2008, which sets off a train of events that leads to major economic disruption around the world, which uh, is a big part in the Arab Spring and the subsequent revolutions, which is a big part in creating the war in Syria, which has now led to a situation where Russia has reestablished itself as a military power in the Mediterranean, in Syria and, and, uh, and in Libya. I don't think 
even GMF would have been wise <laughs> enough to sit there watching Lehman Brothers collapse in 2008 and say, this is going to lead to Russia reestablishing <laughs> itself as a military power in the Mediterranean. It's, you know, you just sometimes you just have to have to watch things unfold and try do do your best. But I think to be sort of be more serious about it, I do think that if, if, we're, if, if we're right that this is a health crisis, which the most important immediate impact will be an economic one um, once we've got over the health side of it. If that puts a number of countries around the world under stress, there must be a risk that, you know, there are more countries, including in the kind of broader Euro-Atlantic neighbourhood, sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, the Middle East, uh, who, who, who find themselves under real stress. And, and maybe this, you know, this, this generates the circumstances in which conflict breaks out or even a country collapses. Now, we obviously hope that isn't going to happen. And it's why so much of the UK's effort at the moment is actually in the economic space. It's in mobilising the G7 and the G20, the World Bank, WHO, to, uh, to make sure we're doing everything we possibly can economically to stop that kind of scenario happening. But I would worry that, that you know, we could see a resurgence of the migration flows that hit Europe in 2015. Some of the most vulnerable countries are once again on those routes into Europe in 2015, from the Sahel in uh, southwest in, in sub-Saharan uh, West Africa, the Horn of Africa, or indeed through sort of Afghanistan, Pakistan, countries like that. So, um, I, I think that would be the black swan I worry about at the moment. Is 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 we are uh, we're facing situations where we have to decide whether or not it's sensible to intervene in a country to help it stopping falling over and it's why we should focus so much of our effort now on not getting to that stage in the first place so there's a defense official arguing for more diplomatic (laughs) development and treasury-led activity please Excellent. I'm sure your colleagues would be thrilled to hear that. That's that's great. Well, Angus, thanks for all you're doing back over on the other side of the Atlantic in, in the UK. So so great to talk to you today. Wishing you all the best um, with these long, long list of challenges. We didn't even get into cyber and space. I mean, you've got so much ground to cover, but uh, we'll save that for the next time. And thanks again for joining us and, and all the best. Thanks very much, Jean. Bye-bye. Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Telsenfreund. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 